Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. This gathered season, we're doing a series on handling scripture. And we've never explicitly sat and just talked about the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, or any of those things. And the Bible has been a central part of our community for years. We gather in house churches two-thirds of the year. And one of the three pillars that is gathering the community around is navigating the scriptures together. So we thought it was maybe about time we gave some space and attention to just sit in this topic a little. And the first three, I'm navigating us through a little bit more of an academic. Some of you are thinking, but I promise I'll try and keep you awake and alert. And I even brought fidget toys tonight. So I'm going to pass out. We'll start some here, and you can play with those and pass them on. It'll be an object lesson and part of the teaching later on, so pay attention. And if you, don't give me these, if you don't give me my magnets back, I will hunt you down, okay? So we're in a series on handling scripture. Last week, actually, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm too excited. I'm probably inappropriately excited to teach this message tonight. I'm going to start by reading a section of scripture from the Gospel of Luke. This is post-resurrection. Jesus was on the scene. He was thought to be the political leader, militant Messiah of Israel who's going to free them from Roman captivity, bondage, and oppression. And he has died, and his disciples are distraught and lost. And he comes back on the scene, resurrected, and he finds two of his disciples, we don't even know their names, walking along this road to this small town called Emmaus. And he comes up alongside them. Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day's almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And I'm reading this passage every week kind of as a reminder of the inseparability of the man of Jesus Christ and the scriptures that testify about him. This is not like any other book. We don't approach it in the same way. And last week I went to great lengths, maybe painful lengths for some of us, to reflect upon some of the inappropriate ways that we construe the nature of Scripture and how that ends up leading to a diminished view of what the Scriptures actually are and a diminished view of their authority functioning in the body of Christ. A couple little summary reflections from last week for those who weren't here. I'll be quick on these. And there is a recording on it if you're real excited. I opened with this line from a Bible scholar named Tim Mackey. He's the voice and creator behind the Bible Project, one of the best biblical scholars and thinkers that I know of on the topic of the Bible. And he has this great line. He says, we need to understand what the Bible is so we can understand what it is for. And he goes to great lengths to explain how when we do it in reverse, when we start with thinking what we know the Bible's for, and then we work backwards, we end up with a diminished understanding of what the scriptures are. 
I gave some examples last week of the Bible being for changing our beliefs. And so it's just a theological answer book that we can just flip open and argue about different doctrines and just say, oh, I'm right, I figured it out, here's the reason why. And so it's a, it's a book of answers for changing our, our brains and our thoughts and our beliefs. It also could be thought of as a rule book that changes our behaviors. So we go to this book and it just tells us what to do and what not to do. And as long as we obey it, then that's Christianity. We just need to obey what it says to do and not do. Another one is we construe the Bible as a, a personal love letter that's written just to me. It's probably more appropriate to say that the Bible wasn't written to you, but it's been passed on for you. It's been preserved, composed, and stewarded by the church for you. So it wasn't to you, but it's for you. And I think all of this leads to kind of a two-dimensional flat reading of the Bible and a diminished understanding of biblical authority, and it produces a diminished understanding of Christianity and discipleship at the end of the day. And again, all of those things on one level are true. I think God's interested in changing our beliefs, changing our behaviors, and speaking to us about his love. He's interested in all those, but in isolation, or even those only, I think, leave us with something less than he intended less than he's trying to do. Gave a little attention as well to some ways that we separate and depending on our personality, depending on our church upbringing, depending on if we became a Christian as an adult or when we were a kid, some of us lean more towards emphasizing the humanity of the scripture and maybe being less likely to trust its authority on certain matters or submit to it in certain ways. And others of us probably would prefer that the scriptures just floated down from a cloud like golden tablets, and we could just trust that what it says is what it says, and, and it's simple and clear, and there's no confusion there. And I presented us with a different model. I presented us with an incarnational model, and a four-dimensional, immersive reading of the Bible that it gives us an expanded understanding of biblical authority and produces a vibrant version of Christianity and discipleship. And, and I think I kind of ended by honing in on this idea. Would it not make sense that this library of books that we have now and have the privilege to have that we call the Holy Bible, would it not make sense that its nature would be in line with the Word made flesh? We worship a God that bleeds. We worship a crucified Savior. And so would it not make sense that the form of revelation, the canonization of stories and the witnesses that testify about him would also be human and divine. That the medium is the message and the form that scripture has come to us in, even the whole process by which it came to be canonized, authored, written over 1,500 years, does it not make sense that it would fit the same quality and character that God comes to us ultimately in Christ? And so tonight, I'm going to flesh out, that was the nature of scripture, what is it? And we did some nerdy history, and we could dive a lot deeper. I didn't get into the specifics of how the two separate canons were formed, but if you really want to have fun, we could get coffee, and I'd be happy to talk to you about that. <laughs> and again, my whole point and kind of argument that I wanted to leave us with was that from start to finish our faith, we are dependent on him not human rationality or human ingenuity. And this whole process from the beginning, from creation, from Abraham, from the whole story, we are dependent on him. The story is about his sufficiency for humanity and his sufficiency for us, not our sufficiency. 
not our ability to rationally get somewhere or prove something. It's dependence through and through from start to finish. And tonight we're going to shift and talk a little bit about the four and the function. So what is scripture and now how does this work and what is it actually for? What's, what is scripture trying to do to us and how does it do that? If it's not just a rule book like I'm trying to kind of convince us and it's not just a manual for theology answers and philosophical musing and it's not just a love letter to me in the 21st century. If it's much more than that, how does it accomplish that and what's it trying to accomplish in us? That's the goal tonight. I'll just read this kind of because I'm a little excited and jittery, so I'll just read this to settle myself down. When we begin to submit to the authority of the Bible, our behaviors, our beliefs, and our sense of God's personal love for us, it will change. But it's not going to come to fruition through willpower or just memorizing lists of right behaviors or right thinking. The Bible seeks to change us at a much deeper level. It begins to change the deepest core of our identity, our sense of who we are in this world. And from that change, your behaviors and beliefs and things you think will grow and mature and develop. So it's for identity. It's for renewing our imagination, not just giving us lists of right answers. How does this happen? Well, it leads to a really great question that philosophers and pastors and people of all cultures for all human history have been asking, how do you make a human? And I know what Ben's thinking, no. We're not talking about the birds and the bees. I'm talking about, I'm talking, that is one of the ways. So that's, that's, step, that's step zero to one. But then how do you go from one and beyond? How do you make a human? How do you form a human? In psychological language, we might call this developmental theories or, or nurturing. How do you form a sense of identity in a human being? How does that, how do we come... Come to be Donnie or Mia or Katie or Lisa. How do we come to be the people we are and believe the things we do and do the things we do? How does that happen? And this is an essential question for us as followers of Jesus. It's essential for our own personal maturity and lifelong process of becoming like him. How do we change and grow and mature? It's also really important if you plan to follow Jesus, you're going to, along the way, end up taking some responsibility for other people. So how do you faithfully steward and honor that process of change and growth for someone else. And then I'd say, third, what role is this library of books playing in that process? How does it help accomplish this in partnership with the body of Christ, with the Holy Spirit? How does it help change and grow and mature us? Guys, this is going to be so fun. Okay, <laughs> here is... Here is, and man, this is going to be painfully brief, but I could, do, I could do like 500 years of Western church history and theology reflection. I spent a whole year writing a big paper about this. Go for it. About how, actually, if you're really curious, you could hop on our podcast, and I have a five-hour lecture series where I expand on this more. So go knock yourself out, Russell. See, I gotcha. So... Let me just do this really quick. I would say, I'm suggesting to you guys, you could disagree and we could have coffee and talk about this. I'm suggesting that implicit in our modern day culture and implicit within most of our models of discipleship in the church is a very two-dimensional model of how human beings change. And the model goes something like this. You take information 
and you put it into a brain, you bring it to conscious thought, you listen to really good preaching or teaching or sermons, or you go to another seminar on another new thing, a new revelation, and then you start making different choices with your life, and then it leads to a better version of you, and you've changed, and now the whole process repeats. And this is fundamentally our cultural American self-help, which seeps into our Christian culture too sometimes, model of how we grow and change. You need new information, you need the right theory, you need the right preaching, you need the right this, the right that. And if we just stuff enough information in here, and if we get the right information, if we tell people how to behave, and if we tell people what to believe, then they'll turn into good people and they'll go to the good place. And I'm being a little harsh and critical, but if we sit in this, I think often we believe this. And then this is how we get those earlier models that I was talking about last week and reminded us of, where we view the scriptures as just a source book, like it's a, a phone book or an instruction manual for some Ikea furniture, and we just flip to it, okay, what is the good thing I'm supposed to do or the bad thing I'm not supposed to do? Hey, what's the right theological belief about God on this doctrine or this thing? And, and we turn it into something that is diminished of what it's actually supposed to be. Because we have a shallow and insufficient model of how to actually change and grow people. And, and on a deeper personal level, like, do we not all long for real healing and real change and transformation and real development and maturity? How many of us get so sick and tired of repeating the same brokenness over and over and over in our behaviors, in our thoughts? And we just get tired sitting in this cycle of a model that's not helping us actually change. So, what am I offering? What am I suggesting? I would invite us to a four-dimensional discipleship model. And this visual of an iceberg is, there's a great book out there called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by a pastor on the East Coast named Pete Scazzaro. And he has an iceberg on the front. And the tagline of the book is, you can't be more spiritually mature than you are emotionally mature. And he's confronting the superficiality of how we try to address our own issues and seek development and change and maturity, even in the church and in Christ and in reading scripture. Above the surface, all the while, there's this other part that makes up our humanity and is functioning in our brain. And we have good science and psychology that backs this up that tells us the brain is not just functioning on this surface level. And that's why I chose this image, just to give us a metaphor. And I want to explain what I'm getting at here. And psychologists in the room, you may love this, or this may be painful if I'm making it too simplistic. So I apologize on the front end. But fundamentally, there's some language, and people might call these different things. There's some common agreement in the academy in amongst neuroscientists, brain scientists, psychologists, that we have a slow track to our brain. And this slow track is what most of us culturally think of as a brain, as our mind. It's the conscious part of our thoughts, where we are actually reflecting on things, we're weighing options, we're making decisions. It's 
the right side, and it's the prefrontal cortex. It's the executive functioning center. This is where we make decisions. We evaluate pros and cons and make decisions. And the prefrontal cortex that we all think of as our brain or our center of our will and choice is pretty inefficient. And anyone who has worked in a helping profession where you work with people, or if you own a company and manage people, or if you've just been a human and had a pulse for more than a couple decades, you're very aware that by our own willpower, we're often very weak to bring about change. And Paul attests to this. Peter's story attests to this in Scripture. We have models of this. Paul says, the things I do want to do, I don't do, I can't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do anyways. And Paul is aware that there's two parts of his brain here. And there's this slow track where he knows what he should do, but then he can't get himself to do it. And underneath the slow track is this part of our brain, which is neurologically webbed into our entire bodies, that we'd call the fast track of the brain. And I promise I have a point. I'm going to give you all this kind of academic stuff, and then I'm going to talk about the brilliance and beauty of the scriptures and how God created us, and he knows we're wired this way and how this is meant to help form us on a much deeper level, okay? So philosophers call this part of our brain the tacit, dimension. It's the, it's the supraconscious or the precognitive. Psychologists would call it subconscious. You know, if you're a psychology 101 in high school, reading Freud or something. A scientist might call it the thalamus or the lizard brain. It's, it's a more basic rudimentary part of our brain and you don't consciously control it. And the minute you try to, okay, I'm going to control my thalamus. I'm going to tell myself, the minute you try doing that, well, now it's not your thalamus anymore. It's your prefrontal cortex. It's this kind of elusive part that we actually can't access because the minute we try and access it, we're not accessing it. <laughs> the minute we try it, reflecting on it or thinking about it. Have you ever had like a moment in life where you were just happy as could be? You're watching a sunset or you're, you're just in the moment. You're just feeling joy. And then someone stops and goes, man, isn't this a great moment? And it just kind of ruins it. <laughs> Because all of a sudden you're like, well, yeah, it was great because I was just lost in it and I was just taking it all in and now I'm thinking about it and I'm frustrated that you disrupted it, right? They just disturbed you out of your fast track enjoyment of being a human in the world and now you're sitting there having a conversation about it. We know, we know this, again, it's kind of hard to put your finger on it. It's a little ambiguous. People from all cultures in all times, this isn't just modern science discovering this, have known that there are these there's the you, and then there's parts of you that you wish you could kind of get under control more. So here's the question for us as disciples. If we're after whole person change and transformation, being formed into new creation, then we have to find a way to access that. Because it's steering our ship a lot more than our little willpower rudder that's trying to do its best but often gets overridden Okay, I'm going to be patient with my kids. I'm going to be patient with my kids. And then they dump their yogurt on the chair in the car, and then you have an angry outburst. What is happening in your brain right there? You know that you shouldn't be angry with your children or scream at them, but then the circumstances cause you to react in something precognitive that you can't even control flows out of you. It's the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the high fructose corn syrup overproduced American grocery store just flowing out of you so here's here's the question 
what is it that actually shapes the fast track part of our humanity, of our brains? And if we can name some of those things of what it is, how is scripture trying to help function to shape that part of our humanity so that we can actually be changed into new people at the deepest parts of our identity? Not just superficial Christians who know the right things or think we know the right things and, and think we do the right things, okay? So, this work, it's really fun. Oh, conscious thinking, choices. So that's kind of that first slide model. That's the uh, iceberg that we see. And the part we don't see that's a little more ethereal, ambiguous. So first one, a constitutive narrative or a constitutive story. It's not just that we like stories. We all know that we like stories and we binge watch movies and Netflix and we, it's not just that we like them. I would say we think in stories and to some degree we are our stories. So let me read this quote by a great uh, author and writer, literature professor named Daniel Taylor. He says, you are the product of all the stories you have heard and lived and of many that you have never heard and are unaware of. They have shaped how you see yourself, the world, and your place in it. Your first great storytellers were home, school, culture, and perhaps the church. Knowing and embracing healthy stories are crucial to living rightly and well. If your present life story is broken or diseased or distorted, it can be healed and made well. Or if necessary, it can be replaced by a story that has a plot worth living. And there are entire fields of therapy and clinical practice, evidence-based research, that centers around this idea of trying to help someone re-narrate their story. And one of Ben's favorite quotes that he says all the time is by Dr. Dan Allender. Wasn't planning on saying this one. And Dr. Dan Allender says, children are great observers and terrible interpreters. So that means when we're in our early formative years, and even probably as adults, let's be honest, we gather all this data and we see all these interactions. I see the nonverbals. And then we're kind of bad at actually interpreting what that all means. And sometimes we tell ourselves false stories. And then we live from those stories. And those, now we are living from these false identities attached to those stories. Okay, second one, embodied habits. So we could say it this way. The things you do in your body, the rituals and practices you engage in, do something to you. The things you do, do something to you. Implicit in any behavior or action is a constellation of values that are being hardwired into your brain through that habituated action. And in some ways, the less aware you are that it's even a habit, the less aware you are that you even do it or that there's a different way to do it, probably the more powerful the sway it has on forming your sense of identity and your way of being in the world. I'm not trying to pick on anyone, but sleeping with your phone next to your bed and the first thing you do when you wake up is scroll through social media. That's making a statement about what you value and the type of human you are and what's most important in your life. And it's happening in 10 seconds every morning and you're not even cognizant of that. It's forming and shaping you. So the things we do do something to us and their power is in their invisibility in many ways. Or maybe another example would be if you've ever built a friendship with someone who's from another part of the country or, or another country, or you've been dating someone or you've gotten married and you've gone and spent time with another family, and then you get there and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, my family's kind of weird, right? <laughs> it's like the exposure to a different way of being and a different way of doing things or a different culture makes you all of a sudden 
feel naked and aware that you have a culture and that you have a certain way of doing things, but you just thought that was the way you do it. So there's this exposing of habits that helps us be aware. But the truth is there's all kinds of habits that we haven't had exposed and we're not aware that we're doing and are forming us into a certain type of person. Okay, lastly, I would say your core relationships in your life. We could call it your core attachments. The philosopher James Smith says it beautifully. He has a great book. It's called You Are What You Love. And I would say you are formed and shaped into a certain type of person far more by the people you love most than what you say you believe about the Bible or God. And I go to Zambia a lot of summers, and there's this African proverb called Ubuntu, and it basically is, I am because we are. And I think as Westerners, that gets at something that is still true about us, but we kind of pretend like it's not because we're rugged individualists in the West. But I think African culture very wisely carries and, and is very cognizant of this fact that you are nothing more than the composite of the core relationships in your life, of your community and your tribe. And when you get pressed into a hard situation or a stressful situation, the question that your brain is asking itself that is happening below the surface that you're not conscious of is, what do we do in this moment? And the question is, who is that we? Who is the we that you react from? And that's really getting at who you see yourself to be. And so the core attachments in your life are shaping, for better and worse, the way you react before you can even control it. And I'd say that's probably the most important one of these three, which is why I put them in this order. So we are formed most by the core set of relationships that we would identify with as our tribe. And this is a complex matrix of relationships, friends, family. Let me read a quick quote on this. This is a psychologist and theologian named Jim Wilder. Thanks, Christina, for putting me on to him. Identity is a rather protected brain function. We do not easily allow any other mind to change who we are. Access to establish or change identity is limited to those who we trust and are attached with us. Thus, our significant attachments, the people we love, ultimately are the ones shaping our character. Attachment love, what scripture would call hesed in the Hebrew, is the key to access character. No hesed means no access. Attachment is the foundation of developing identity and character. You are what you love. I just think Jesus wants deep change for us. He doesn't just want superficial change where we can summarize that change in bullet point lists on doctrinal statements or in systematic theology books. And we should do those things. It's important. That's a part of this iceberg. It's not unimportant or it shouldn't be done away with. But if it's done without any awareness that all this other stuff is going on, we're not going to get very far. There's a great line by a philosopher named Dallas Willard. I talked about this at our discussion group last Wednesday. And his litmus test for Christian maturity is if you're becoming the type of person who spontaneously responds with love to your enemies. Not if you believe all the right check boxes. If you are becoming more and more day and day on the scale of your whole life, the type of person 
who when you're put into a threatening situation where everything in you, fight or flight, is telling you to, to duck and cover or run and hide, right? You're getting the shakes. You're having an argument, a confrontation. And we've all experienced this in our bodies. You're with someone and all of a sudden an argument breaks out and your limbic system starts firing and your thalamus starts going and you're like, what's happening to me? And before you even know what's going on, your body is telling you something's going on. And Jesus wants to make us the type of people who could be in an arena of people attacking us where that thalamus is firing. And we can respond with love. That's his goal for us. That's what this book is trying to do to us. It's not merely trying to teach us right answers in our heads. It's trying to change us and form us in the deepest places of who we see ourselves to be and who we see others to be. And ultimately, that can only come if we are attached to the one creator who knows that all humanity is his tribe and that person who feels like my enemy right now, they're not my enemy, they're my brother. They're my sister. And we are one in Christ and our creator, whether they believe in him or not. And all of a sudden, it's a lot easier to go on mission. It's a lot easier to hold a job with people you don't like. It's a lot easier to be part of a church community where you don't like everyone. It's probably good if you're in a house church with people that kind of rub you the wrong way. Because God's goal for you is not right information, it's formation. It's making us the type of human beings who can see all people as our tribe and respond with love when we are being attacked. And if we think about this, I mean, what were the scriptures for Jesus? Probably the only text he ever read in his life. Maybe he had his hands on some other ancient documents. But it was so much more than just a book he would pick up and be like, oh, I'm curious about the Christian religion or the Jewish religion. It's a little, it's a little unfair because we're not cultural Jews, most of us, as far as I know. Maybe some of us have a little bit of DNA in there. But Jesus' whole cultural story, his whole identity for himself as an individual and his people is the Old Testament. It's the narrative that has helped them for thousands of years that they've been compiling, composing as God's been working with them to deliver them from oppression. And it's, it's how he makes sense of loss and pain. It's how he holds on to hope and faith. It is the formative story and narrative that tells him who he is and how to make sense of his world. And it's filled with ritual and habits. We talked about that story in Exodus where God tells Moses to go and write this story down about this battle where he delivered them. But before that, something way bigger happened. God delivered them from Egypt. And how did God tell him to remember that? Eventually it did get written down, but God didn't tell him to write it down. He said, share a meal. It's called the Passover, and it's still practiced by Jews today, and Jesus re-envisions the Passover meal, and we as Christians still practice the Passover to this day. And obviously for Jesus, <laughs> he's born into a Jewish family in, in Bethlehem, moves to Nazareth, and obviously his tribe, his people, the Shema, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, right? This is woven into the fabric of the Jewish life. And the scriptures are not just a book you go to for answers to have some fun philosophical thoughts. They define reality. I think if we focus above the iceberg, 
we get stuck in kind of worldview thinking. So what's a Christian worldview or a Buddhist worldview or a secular worldview? It's, it's what we think we believe that we could confess and say and write out. When we go below the iceberg, we get into a category of what sociologists would call a social imaginary. It is not just a worldview. It is your common sense of what is real and true about the world. It's the way that you make sense of everything. And think about Jesus. What did he do to found the church, to start this movement, this new creation in the New Testament? What did he do? He gathers a community of guys and a whole band of women that end up following them around, them around too. There's like probably at least 30 of them, sometimes 72. He creates a community. He invites them to a bunch of habits and practices, and he has them participating in the next chapter of this story before they even know what they're doing. The Emmaus Road happens after they've already been participating in writing the next pages of the story for over three years. Jesus gathers community, he invites them to a way of life, a rule of life, and then he gets them participating in a story. Even if they're a guy who goes to the whole house church who doesn't even believe in Jesus yet. And that's fine, he's free to his beliefs, but he's invited to a community, he's brought into these habits and practices, and he's a part of a story before he even knows it. Because Matt's a master discipler and he's trying to help form this guy on the deepest parts of who he is. Not just get him to check some boxes and say he believes the right things. And what we're trusting here is that with the power of the Holy Spirit that has helped form this community as God has acted in history and written these texts and now we steward them as the body of Christ in the church and we're trying to live as part of this story, we trust that as we embrace those bottom three, the Holy Spirit's going to lead us to right thinking and right action and right behavior and awareness and conscious knowledge of God's love for us. That it will flow or grow like fruit from this deeper formation that God's doing. Here, I kind of, I should have kept clicking this. If we just focus above the surface, we're stuck with reflection and application as what the Bible does. And it does do that. It's not a bad thing. But the scriptures are trying to invite us fundamentally to this kind of hesed, this covenanting attachment fundamentally to God, and then this beautiful eclectic community throughout time and space and history and culture called the body of Christ. And there's no such thing as following Jesus alone. The minute we come to him, all of a sudden we look around and there's a bunch of other people here. It's called the church. And there's a distinct set of practices or a way of life, a way of being, right? I call these the Jesus assumptions. It's the things he never even commands in the New Testament. Jesus assumes that you're prayerful, that you're fasting, that you're generous, that you're in committed communion, that you're engaging the scriptures. He says things like when you pray or when you fast. There's a certain set of practices that are assumed that if we're going to be faithful interpreters of this book, he assumes that we're engaged in certain bodily practices as we come to it. And a narrative to live in. I mean, Matt Hulst is our apostolic king of inviting us and calling us back to participation in the God story. It's a function and role that Matt plays in this community to always call us back to this story that we're a part of. We're not called to be church attenders. We're called to be church builders, participants, disciples. All right. So I'll end with this. I had a bunch of stories I was going to tell. I won't tell all the stories. And that clock's not exactly accurate because I started it way early and we did a break, so just saying. 
illustration to help us remember this, okay? Because I gave a bunch of quotes and we can sit and have coffee and I can tell you a bunch of great books you should read and that's really fun. But I want you to vividly just remember, I want an object lesson to help you remember the deeper, more profound way that the scripture is trying to form us than just reflecting on it and theological thoughts or behaviors. It doesn't want to start there at least. So, I'm sure a lot of you, like me, have often looked at magnets and wondered, gee, where do magnets come from? Have I ever done, I don't think I've ever done this. Wow, I've been holding this in for years. <laughs> this is my moment to let it out. <laughs> so, gee, I'm glad you guys asked. How do you make a magnet? Well, a magnet is made up of a very special set of molecules. And there's an array of different ones that you could have but it's something called a ferromagnetic material. And all that really means, it's a fancy word for a teachable rock. And think back, try not to get too traumatized, think back to high school chemistry and remember, we have atoms and then atoms combine by different ionic or covalent bonds, right? And they form molecules and those molecules now are pretty complex and crazy, but fundamentally atoms are made up of protons and electrons and they have charges, right? And when you get a bunch of atoms to party together and you lock them into place, well, now you have this con complex constellation of electrons and protons. And depending on the type of molecule, you basically created a tiny little magnet called a molecular dipole. Is that making sense a little? A molecular dipole. So think of a magnet with a negative pole and a positive pole. And you have this molecule like iron oxide or something. And it's made up of these particles and these particles have positive and negative charges and the distribution of those averages out and you sometimes with some certain materials like a ferromagnetic material, you have positive poles and negative poles in the array of protons and electrons. So you have a tiny little magnet that you could never even see with a microscope, it's so small. And then you have a physical rock, a ferromagnetic rock made up of that iron oxide or some type of ferromagnetic. And in nature, it's just a rock because the, for every molecule that's pointing this way, there's another one pointing that way, or this way, or that way, and when you average it all out, you get a net magnetic field of zero, so it's just a rock. Like a rock we could go pick up out on the street. But this is where it gets really exciting. <laughs> yes. How do you turn that rock into a magnet? You need to immerse it in an external magnetic field. And the reason these ferromagnetics are so special, and we call them teachable, is because those little molecules, they're open to change. They're malleable. They can move. They can rotate. They're not stuck in their ways. They're not an old shoe. They're not narrow-minded. They're not crusty, <laughs> bitter, hardened by life. They are soft and teachable and open to change. And. Oh, it keeps going. If you leave that rock in that magnetic field long enough, so if you place it in that field and you boom, turn on this big electromagnetic field and it just sits there, imagine this is a two-dimensional graph, but there's a third dimension called time here. So if it starts here and it's just a rock and the internal field of that rock is zero, like I said, they're all canceling out, and then you put it in an external field that was initially zero, and then you crank it up and you increase the strength of the magnetic field. And then you let time pass. Look what starts to happen. 
the teachable dipoles start to, they start to line up. And the internal field that the rock is producing increases roughly linearly with the field that it's sitting in. And if enough time passes, you hit this thing called saturation point. And if you shut it off too soon and you don't give it enough time, it'll go boom, right back to zero and it'll just be a dud. It'll just be a rock again. Are we tracking? <laughs> so if you leave it in though long enough, I don't know, for human beings, maybe it takes, say, three years or so. If you leave it in long enough, you hit saturation point. And once you've hit that, it's a critical place where enough of those dipoles have shifted that the magnetic field that they're generating holds them in place. And even if you shut off this external magnetic field and let it go back to zero, you have a permanent magnet. And now this teachable rock forever, and you could smash it into a thousand pieces, and all thousand pieces would still be magnetized. And it will attract. What used to just be a dud, what used to just be a normal rock, exudes an invisible force that can be felt by other objects in its proximity. And I don't know about you guys, but there is no better metaphor for discipleship to Jesus. <laughs> Come on. Anyone, anyone ever read the Aramaic or Greek in the New Testament? Peter, Petros, the rock, rocky. <laughs> and if you leave it in long enough and you hit that saturation point and then you remove it from that field, you have now created this permanent magnet. And I would argue that your journey of becoming more like Jesus is a lot more like this magnet. And it's a lot more dependent on us indwelling a community that is trying to submit to the authority of this story and trust and follow the practices, things like baptism, things like the Lord's Supper, things like caring for the poor, things like prayer, fasting, meals together, generosity. I think as we indwell those practices, that will form who we're becoming that will turn us into a person that's a lot more like Jesus as we indwell the community that did all three of those things filled with the Holy Spirit. It will change us a lot more than reading shelves and shelves of theology books. And we can do that. It's not bad. I love that. Everyone in this room pretty much knows that. <laughs> and we can argue about doctrines, and we should do that. There are bad, dangerous doctrines and better doctrines. Like, I'm not saying... We discount that process of the conscious reflection above the iceberg. But we're not going to become the type of people who can spontaneously respond in love when we feel threatened by having the right answers in our heads. No way. Not a chance. It doesn't work. And we all have enough life experience in different contexts and communities, Christian or secular, to know that that's not going to work. It's not enough. So, the external field, it's the story guiding your life, it's the set of practices that you put your body through on a regular basis, and ultimately it's the community of people, fundamentally God, fundamentally your relationship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, it's your primary attachment as a follower of Jesus, and then secondarily it's the community called the body of Christ and the world beyond. And we as believers know that God desires for all to be saved, that none should perish, right? He desires for all to be 
in the family of God. And so that in that sense, even our enemies we can love. And Jesus says, even pagans love their neighbors, but we're called to love our enemies. And so we're in the process of becoming the type of people who could do that. And it's going to take time. And I could go on a whole nother sermon about this. There's going to be seasons of loss in it too. You're going to have high seasons where Jesus is close and intimate. And then you're going to have seasons of pain and suffering and loss where you feel like you're just falling backwards and your magnetic field is shrinking. And I'll tell you this, it's part of the process of solidifying you into something that cannot lose your magnetic field. There's going to be seasons to it. As you indwell community, as you participate in this thing called the God story, as you give your body over to these rituals and practices, I, could, I have like 14 stories listed in bullet points, <laughs> highlighted in green. I think you guys get the idea. I think an invitation, maybe better than me giving my examples, would be for you to sit with the Lord this week and go, man, what have been the most formative moments of my walk with Jesus? Just sit in that for a little bit and recognize. You don't have to just take it on my speech tonight. Think about it, how the stories you believe and the people you've given your trust and your heart to and the practices you've given yourself over to, they have been the things allowing the Holy Spirit to shape and form you. And this book is stewarding and giving the script for us to live into that. It's revelation. It's to be the, the life source and guide for the community, for the body of Christ. And if not this, I don't know what our goal is. I think I have one more slide. We'll close. Scripture aims to teach us far more than just good behaviors and right answers on that superficial level. The scriptures aim to change us in the deepest part of our humanity and our identity. And it seeks to change the deepest part of our humanity and how we see others' humanity. It seeks to turn us into people of love. And I'm just going to pray that over us. And I invite us this week to, to sit in that and and reflect on our own testimonies. The book of Revelation says it's by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. It's by the lived practice of these things that we are actually formed by which we'll overcome. Father, I just pray that over our family. I pray that you would teach us a more holistic model and understanding of, of what the scriptures are actually trying to form in us, the type of human beings you destine us to become one day. And I just pray that, if anything, increase our sense of awe and wonder and reverence for the, the depths to which you know us, that you know we're wired this way, you built us this way, and you've been showing up with your people for 3,500 years, and these books witness to that reality, and we now participate, we're part of that witness, we're a part of the story. And I pray that if any parts of our hearts have have become locked in, refusing to be rotated and moved, refusing to be teachable and malleable. I just pray that you would soften those parts of our hearts to the scriptures. And you're not afraid of our questions. You're not afraid of our wrestles. There is freedom and space and safety with you and in this community to ask hard questions and wrestle with doctrines and all that. 
but may we not miss the forest and the trees and forget what this is actually trying to do in us, what your Holy Spirit is actually trying to form in us as your followers. So bring to our mind, I pray, wisdom and revelation this week as we reflect on our own stories of formation. And may we continue to be formed and may we steward the formation of others well and faithfully. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.